Welcome to the Policy Lowdown, the podcast from the Maryland Center on Economic Policy, offering straight talk on the policies that matter most to Maryland communities. I'm your host, Kevin Slate. The war on drugs has long caused disproportionate harm to communities of color, particularly with the criminalization of cannabis. Decades of punitive sentencing for cannabis-related drug offenses has ultimately led to mass incarceration, in particular of black and brown people. Now there's a change in the way the society, as well as lawmakers, view this issue. And many states have since legalized medical and recreational use of cannabis. Maryland here legalized it recently, and recreational cannabis um, particularly on July 1. And cannabis sales have doubled already to $88 million in July, bringing in an, an estimated $4.6 million in tax revenue. That's a lot of money. Activists and public officials emphasize that they want to see cannabis sales benefit those communities that have suffered most, but efforts to increase the number of black and brown business owners have faltered thus far. Today, I'm extremely excited to be joined by two guests uh, for a conversation about cannabis legalization and what it means in particular for communities of color. Joining me in studio today is my friend Davon Love, who is the Director of Public Policy and the co-founder of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Most folks just call him LBS. Brother Love has led efforts with many organizations that successfully pressured this state uh, to disband its plans to build a juvenile jail downtown. They also led legislative efforts and advocacy efforts regarding criminal justice reform, youth and community empowerment. And Davon himself, well-regarded, is also an author of Worse Than Trump, the American Plantation, a book that offers an important critique of the American political left and political alternative to the exploitative relationship that black folk have to white institutions. Davon is also the author of When Baltimore Wakes, which is a comprehensive critique of the way the, that white supremacy is embedded in the human and social service sector here in Baltimore. Brother Davon, thank you so much for being here with me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Rafe. And also by my friend, um, whom I met at a conference in Ohio, Brother Justin Streckel. He is with Better Organized to Win uh, Legalization, and his PAC is called the Bold, B-O-W-L PAC. Justin, thank you for joining us. Thank you so very much for having me, Kevin. I'm excited to talk about the, the real-world implications of, of what legalization means. Great. Uh, let's start with you, Justin. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization and the work you've done in this area. Uh, well, I, I never thought that I would be a, a marijuana policy reform advocate. Uh, you know, growing up a working class kid in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, you know, who, who was radicalized uh, during the, the anti-war movement in 2003, uh, I got involved in, in politics 
And then I was working in the Virginia State Senate in 2015 and helped draft the Commonwealth's first decriminalization bill that was introduced in the, in the upper chamber there. And while working with groups like the ACLU and the NAACP and others to address the full associated harms of the criminalization of marijuana, uh, coupled with my own personal story of having been arrested with my best friend back in Ohio, and seeing the disparity firsthand where you know i as, as a young white man got uh just uh, a, a menial sentence community service and court costs and and my friend who got the exact same charges saw the exact same judge neither of us had priors got a year of probation um a year of drug testing that he had to pay for and he had to go to drug and alcohol classes that he had to pay for uh you know that that's what fuels my righteous indignation to, to now full-time professionally work on cannabis policy reform. And I served for over five years as the national political director and federal lobbyist for NORML, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, uh, prior to setting up my own C4 and PAC in early 2021. Well, I am extremely excited to have you join us as well as Davon. I would love it if you could share a bit more about yourself and how you came to this work and um, share what it is you would like the guests to know about you. Um, so my formative experience that relates to the work I do is in uh, intercollegiate, high school and intercollegiate policy debate. Policy debate is one of the most rigorous forms of academic debate that exists. A lot of people that end up working in major think tank and policy advocacy organizations Many of them come out of the um, activity of policy debate. In fact, uh, George, uh, Donald Rumsfeld once said the most powerful person in the country was the person that determined the high school and college debate topics. Um, you know, Karl Rove comes out of, of a policy debate. It was the architect of, you know, kind of the neoconservative uh, movement. Um, and so, and in fact, you know, uh, policy debate played a big role in the conservative revolution of the 70s and 80s, um, where in response to the social movements of the 60s and 70s, you have, you know, Heritage Foundation, Manhattan Institute, American Enterprise Institute, these major think tanks that emerge as, you know, the intellectual weaponry behind the conservative revolution. And so I came into the activity during an intellectual and academic in the, in the innovation of the activity that challenged the norms and procedures of traditional debate, challenged them um, and having white supremacy embedded in their research practices and methodology. And so out of the Pan-African Studies Department, University of Louisville, um, Dr. Eddie Warner and Daryl Birch um, developed a team that would include things like hip hop and organic intellectuals and personal experience and um, the black um, African-centered literature base, um, produced a team of two black women, Liz Jones, Tanya Green, to get to quarterfinals of two national championship tournaments. My college debate partner, who's also from Baltimore, a year older, went to University of Louisville for two years, came to tra transfer to Towson to debate with Towson University to debate with me. Daryl Birch moved from Louisville to Baltimore to train Devin and I. And in 2008, we won nationals, um, won a national championship, extending on that intellectual and, and academic tradition. So when myself and a lot of my colleagues on the team were finished with the activity of debate, we formed LBS, understanding that important but unsexy role of policy advocacy with the perspective and kind of Africa-centered black radical worldview that we were socialized into. So LBS was formed from the understanding of using those skills that we got from policy debate and policy advocacy as the basis for what we would do for our community here in Baltimore. 
very, very fascinating. Did you or your colleagues have any idea at that age the role or influence that lobbyists played in policymaking? Not in a concrete sense. I mean, we understood it, you know, through reading books and understanding history, you know, and politics from, you know, kind of a spectator's perspective. I remember very early on when we first started LBS, we looked around and we noticed that many of the issues that impacted black people on a policy level, the folks and in institutions leading that work were not black people and certainly not people that were accountable to or saw themselves in the communities that would be a harm. So that was also for us a sign that we were on the right track of forming an organization many of us being other from the communities that were hit by the war on drugs and all these other systems, um, we were clear that we would occupy a very unique and important space at that time. And since then, one final question in this area mm -hmm. as you develop it, how, how now have you sensed the influence of uh, a lobby dollars up against the most well-crafted and delivered um, advocacy argument before a legislative body? You know, one thing that I'm increasingly developing clarity about is the importance of understanding power. And, you know, I think a lot of times it gets reduced just to, like, people having money or having wealth. And that's important. That's, that's huge. People with money understand the importance of politics, which is why they pay lobbyists. Because if you're able to set the rules for how society works, it impacts the ability for those with wealth and resources to make money. And so for us, we, we, we've observed that the amount of resources put into lobbyists, particularly on the, on the other side of us on issues, you know, there was a, a big piece around bail reform and pretrial reform a few years ago, where we, we were on the other side of the bail bonds industry, very well financed and had a lot of money. Um, same thing with law enforcement, the fraternal order of police. Um, and so, I mean, the influence of lobbyists are tremendous. And to me, again, it demonstrates that like just having money, that's a start. But but people with money understand that that being able to write the rules as it relates to public policy, that's the source of power that all of them sees, and that's why lobbyists exist. Justin, what has been the outcome of legalization across the nation? Across the nation, we are now we have now seen twenty-three states legalize the adult use of marijuana. Um, and the majority of those states have enacted a, a regulatory structure to permit businesses to lawfully sell cannabis to consumers 21 and up. Uh, one of the exceptions is, is uh, your neighbors in Virginia. They have yet to be able to set up a licensing structure for adult use and still only have medical. Uh, we've seen, a, as, as predicted, we've seen a dramatic decrease in the overall number of arrests for marijuana, now that possession is is no longer a crime um, or a civil penalty, uh, because it's important to keep in mind, while most states have either decriminalized or legalized, decriminalization still has a civil penalty and still gives law enforcement the ability to and and the mandate to interact with citizens as a result of suspected possession. Um, so you still have that tension there. Um, but we, you know, in, in prohibition states and criminalization states, we see a racial disparity in those arrests. Uh, according to the ACLU, we, we see that disparity range from three to one to as high as 19 to one in some counties around this country. Um, we have seen that disparity tighten in states that have legalized. 
but where they still have aspects of, of criminalization on the books. Um, you know, in some states it is illegal for you. It's a legal state, but it's illegal to drive with marijuana in the car. Under the law, it has to be in the trunk. Um, and, uh, you know, other, other niche ways where, where law enforcement still can interact with people. Um, we have seen that racial disparity gap close, but not altogether be eliminated. And uh, the Marshall Project, our friends there, have some really great data uh, showing how the disparity has tightened um, in states like Washington and Colorado post-legalization. But we, we still have a long way to go um, when it comes to respecting individuals' rights, but we, we're, we're working on it. Can you give us an overview of, of how the, the, the war on drugs has impacted black and brown Baltimore? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Baltimore is not unlike other cities around the country and other places around the country that are majority black communities. And when you look at the politicization of law enforcement, you know, most people are now aware of, you know, mass incarceration, the Nixon administration's call for the war on drugs. Um, John Ehrlichman, one of his staffers that talked about criminalizing, um, you know, cannabis and other drugs as a way to criminalize the anti-war left and criminalize black people. So that's become more well-known. And, and so the important aspect to add to that is the politicization of law enforcement as a response to what I mentioned before of the social movements of the 60s and 70s, um, creating that, that resistance to it. And so, mass, so in many ways, uh, the war on drugs and mass incarceration Black people were the collateral damage of a political war where, you know, conservatives, the right wing, wanted to maintain power and control. And, you know, some folks have referred to as like the silent majority or those like Reagan Democrats, those folks who had resentment at the progress of the social movements of the 60s and 70s. So mass incarceration is a weapon used against black people politically to decimate our communities. Um, and so when you talk about Baltimore, Baltimore is unique in a, in a couple of ways. One is that Baltimore is one of the few cities that didn't have a kind of typical civil rights mayor. Like during that period of time, Baltimore had William Donald Schaefer and his politics were very clearly, you know, corporate, you know, liberal nonprofit, um, you know, his focus on downtown, the disinvestments from the, the neighborhoods, majority of black neighborhoods, the, the highway to nowhere. Um, and so in a lot of ways, Baltimore had a, had a very conservative political culture that had no problem looking at mass incarceration as its policy. And then when you look at Martin O'Malley, who emerges um, with a platform around addressing violent crime, his illegal arrest policy from 1999 to 2006, there was an independent human rights organization that did a study, 757,000 illegal arrests over that period of time. Um, and so you see just you know, hundreds of thousands of black people tracked into the criminal justice system. And what you see is that in those neighborhoods where, you know, black people were most impacted by mass incarceration overlap with all the under indicators in terms of life expectancy, you know, wealth and income, like all of those things, you know, vacant house, all those things map on to the communities most impacted by the war on drugs. And I think sometimes we reduce it to just the individual people who were locked up, mm -hmm. abused, brutalized by law enforcement. That's certainly an important part of it, but we gotta think about the collective impact that has on communities and neighborhoods, the inability to establish the kind of ecosystem of institutions needed 
for a community to exercise power and sovereignty and self-determination and thriving, mass incarceration undercut black people's ability in a society where we already are at a disadvantage given all the other ways that white supremacy operates undermine our ability to engage in the activities that any sovereign people would need to participate in. And I, and so I think Baltimore continues to see that, that challenge. Mm -hmm. What's, what's interesting about that and you explain it very well is I can recall my childhood and we're a little different in age, even my own father, um, other relatives, if you were addicted to drugs, you were referred to as a junkie. Mm -hmm. That was, you were a junkie. Um, over time, it's changed now that other communities are impacted mm -hmm. by addiction. Um, mm -hmm. They are labeled differently, mm -hmm. and their their need for compassion and different ways to approach them is different this day and age. And so here we are, much of that stigma was tied to folks who use marijuana, mm -hmm. But as we just went through, it's been decriminalized, it's been legalized for medical, mm -hmm. now even recreational. Um, can you talk to us about what happened? What, 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 what happened at the state capitol to get us to this point? I would say two things. One is, is that I think many advocates, you know, myself and many other organizations in the state of Maryland who've been pounding the pavement on the harm the criminal justice system has done to black people in Maryland. Mm -hmm. Maryland has the highest percentage of its black population incarcerated than any other state in the United States, um, has the worst record on how it deals with young people in the criminal justice system of any state in the United States. And so, so a, a part of it is a recognition by the legislature, a you know Democratic Party stronghold, 30% black people, about 11% Latinx folks, so I think that there just was a recognition that there were needed to be major um, ways to address the harm and the impact of the criminal justice system. And there have been many studies that show that cannabis prohibition policies are the front line of what law enforcement typically uses as its excuse or mechanism to go after and to have disproportionate contact with people of African descent and other people of color. The second thing, though, is that there was a recognition of the revenue generation of it. You know, it's big, it's big business. You look at states all across the country that legalize recreational medical. It's a great business opportunity for the state. And so in some ways, an interest convergence, you know, because we, we've had to kick the, you know, uh, drag the state kicking and screaming as it relates to addressing criminal justice. And it's still difficult when it, even having it legalized, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but even legalizing recreational cannabis, law enforcement still wants to use the smell of odor as probable cause for search and seizure. So, so it's, it's, it's even with the legalization, with the rhetoric around the criminal justice impacts, that part's still hard. But what we know is, is that it is the economic opportunity that I would argue was the biggest motivator as to why Maryland decided to legalize medical and recreational cannabis. Hmm. Although, and, and you lay it out again, the disproportionate impact uh, that the war on drugs has had on communities of color and recognizing um, what it's done as far as devastating families for Mm -hmm. decades, mm -hmm. um, but still their efforts to increase the number of black and brown folks who were impacted on one side of it to sort of preventing them from benefiting now that it's come above them. And I always remember um, mm -hmm. the story, and I always try and tell folks about, you know, I moved here mm -hmm. at Associated Black Charities. I used mm -hmm. to do lunch every other week with uh, Victorine Q. Adams. Oh, wow. I didn't know who she was That's in that dope. way. Uh, I administered the um, 
Victorine, William, William Victorine Q. Adams Scholarship Fund for Associated Black Charities. Mm. Um, and so she wanted me to come over and have, you know, lunch or whatever. Just, just really did not know exactly who she was. And then I started to do my research, um, and it became very clear um, that the, the numbers game is, was Mr. Adams, you know, mm-hmm. launching. So, yeah. again, I had a father who had issues, but I had a grandfather who was a pretty good numbers runner mm-hmm. growing up. So I understood that side. Mm-hmm. And even then I began to frame my own thinking about how people described Mr. Adams back in the day as, mm-hmm. you know, criminal, dangerous. I mean, the adjectives were really big, but he was really creating this economic opportunity for yeah. his community. That's right. And even though it was viewed in a certain way, in a broader perspective, the reality is this thing that was demonized in the hands of this black man today was what we determined how we would fund our schools. Exactly. You know, everything mm-hmm. was, you know, once we legalized, you know, lottery, mm-hmm. it, it took on a whole different perspective. And so for 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 the work that you all do, and we think about how we have failed as a state to be more inclusive, which is the word we use now, equity and mm-hmm. inclusion. When it comes to making the money on the other side, business owners, folks who are working with, with cannabis, um, it seems to be failing. So could you discuss the ways mm-hmm. then that this additional revenue that's being generated can be used to benefit uh, communities that were ultimately harmed, mm-hmm. particularly in the ways of making folks business owners? So I would say um, a few things. One is LBS was clear that in approaching cannabis from a policy perspective, there were three kind of um, bodies of or areas of of work. One was the criminal justice piece, right? We talked about that, um, and and too often that is the prim- the primary part of the conversation. And one of the things that we would say is, you don't deal with the economics and dealing with criminal justice isn't enough, right? It's that Malcolm X quote where if you put a knife in a person's back, nine inches, pull it out three, that's not what is that's not progress. We can only make progress. So for us, the criminal justice piece was like pulling a knife out, but the resources will help you. Then there is the tax revenues, and then there's the business opportunities. So we'll say the two buckets. And a lot of times those things get confused or melded together, but it's important to understand the distinction. So I'll start with in terms of the tax revenues, because, you know, our theory was twofold. One is the communities impacted by the war on drugs should not just receive resources if they want to participate in the industry. They shouldn't be contingent on participation in the industry to get resources to repair the harm done. So for us, it was important that those revenue and those revenues shouldn't just go back into the general fund. Those revenues should go back to the communities impacted by the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. So we focused on those revenues and and we advocated and you know were successful with, with the establishment of the community repair and reinvestment fund, using kind of reparations as a framework. Senator Carter, in her bill in the 2022 Maryland General Assembly, which came alongside the leadership's, uh, leadership's uh, bill around cannabis, Senator Carter's bill, the Reparations for the War on Drugs Act. But, but what we ended up doing was pulling the Community Repair and Reinvestment Fund out of her bill, putting it in the bill that ultimately became the vehicle that moved through the legislature. And 35% of the tax revenues will go into this fund um, explicitly to repair the harm done by cannabis prohibition policy. Each jurisdiction gets a percentage of those revenues that is determined by that jurisdiction's contribution to cannabis possession charges from 2002 to January of 2023. 
meaning that those jurisdictions most impacted by cannabis prohibition policies will get a larger percentage of it. Each jurisdiction will have to then pass a law that will determine how they spend their portion of it. So Baltimore City has created a Baltimore Reinvestment and Reparations Commission. And we're actually working with other people in other jurisdictions in Prince George's County, Montgomery County, and likely others that want to essentially do something very similar in establishing a reparations commission. So with that, our hope is that those, well, with that is that resources will come back to those communities impacted by the war on drugs and be able to use them, um, again, explicitly to repair the harm done. The business side is more complicated. And as I'm sure you know, your listeners will be aware of the recent Supreme Court decision that really rolled back affirmative action and really the use of race-based language. So one of the things that the legislature was clear about is that while many folks may want to be explicit and say this amount of licenses goes to, to black folks, there was just a recognition that constitutionally and given the Supreme Court that that wouldn't hold. Um, and so the legislature was trying to find ways to utilize, quote, race-neutral language in order to, to be more explicit around supporting black folks getting access to the industry. Um, and so part of the challenges, and this is something that I think this piece will deserve, I think, much larger conversation in other contexts, that the black business community is not organized in such a way that there are legislative instruments that could be directed towards black people given the, the limitations of race neutrality. In other words, if there was some entity or some joint venture, some institutional container of black businesses that then you could legislate, you know, a certain amount of resources going to that. Um, but again, that requires a level of organization of black business community that doesn't exist. Additionally, thinking about those folks in the, on the community, in the communities who have been selling weed illegally, you know, other states have said, have tried to put in their bills that a certain number of licenses going to folks like that. The problem is, is that in doing so, there are all kinds of other supports that are needed. So if you don't have networks that have access to capital, the technical expertise and all those things, and folks that are in that situation tend not to have access to those. So while other states legislated that they wanted that, what good is it if they don't have the infrastructure to actually be successful? And so, so those are the challenges. I think what the state has done well in that regard is the establishment of the Cannabis Business Assistance Fund, which I believe will be a combination of this new office that was created, the Office of Social Equity and the Department of Commerce that actually give grants to folks, you know, um, communities of color impacted by the war on drugs. So that there are attempts, I think, at trying to provide financial supports for it. Um, but to your point, you know, the business part will be a challenge because of all the things I mentioned as to what it takes. And cannabis is a very... Um, capital intensive industry. Like I think people just think, oh, I'm gonna just go put some seeds in the ground, grow some weed, harvest it. But to compete with the highest quality cannabis, you got people to have indoor facilities where they control the temperature, you know, the, the lighting, like it's, it's, it's something that is very resource intensive. And so those are things that I think the state is working to try to address, but those are really difficult challenges. I'd be interested in knowing uh, what are some of the challenges that states that have already legalized medical or recreational use of of cannabis going forward in terms in particular of cannabis industry and state and federal policy. What are some of those those challenges? Well, there there's the the challenge that they're likely to tell you is the biggest one is the continued uh, existence of the illicit market. Um, or what what other advocates like to say, the legacy market, the unregulated market, the traditional market. 
Uh, so people who are purchasing from non-regulated entities. Um, that's going to continue this, you know, we've had over 80 years of prohibition. Consumer trends are difficult things to, to dramatically sway. And also when you see cannabis being sold at regulated dispensaries at two, three, four times the cost of what you, what consumers would uh, regularly see on the unregulated market, uh, you're going to save money by, by purchasing from the same guy you've been buying for from 10 years. Um, you know, but for, for the purposes, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, the, the difficulties in trying to create pathways to ownership, particularly amongst entrepreneurs who have historically been uh, disproportionately suffered the brunt of criminalization. So we're talking black and brown entrepreneurs and, and those who come from lower rungs on the socioeconomic ladder. That's been really challenging because, um, you know, in some of these states, we, we like to joke, they're, they're trying to regulate marijuana like plutonium. And it's incredibly difficult for those who, who may not come from wealth to be able to set up a business that can comply with those regulations. And additionally, we, we see very high hurdles to that application process being set up uh, and, and compounded with the fact that due to the, the federal prohibition of marijuana, traditional financing uh, for entrepreneurs is very difficult. Uh, you know, it's still illegal for banks to be servicing marijuana companies while some banks choose to do so, even the ones who choose to do so are typically not offering loans to businesses. So it's in, unless you already have uh, personal wealth, it, it's very difficult to put together that money that unless you have well-connected wealthy friends who are willing to invest. Uh, so, you know, really trying to create a robust market where the owners of, of those companies actually live in the communities that they serve is, is still a huge challenge. And we're seeing some states trying to do good, uh, good things. In particular, I'd point to New York, where they're prioritizing uh, impacted individuals by the war on drugs to be first in line to get licensing to open up on the adult use market. But even then, we're seeing some of the biggest cannabis companies now suing the, the Office of Cannabis Control in New York uh, trying to, to have their, uh, their companies uh, be first in line instead. So there, a, a lot of the promises are, are either incomplete or in progress. Are there any growing pains that you can look at happening in other states that, that Maryland should be looking at to try and avoid? Yeah, I think, so, so I would say two things. One is, is that um, I think Maryland should, and I think Maryland is doing a decent job of this, or I think attempting to, which is it's important to make sure that black people have, the mo have as much access as possible to some of those auxiliary aspects of the industry that are less capital intensive. So transportation, social consumption sites, security, paraphernalia, like getting because because those industries are less capital intensive, those could be the starting point of the wealth needed then to eventually go and get bigger licenses. And so I think that's one thing. And I think other states, because they were so gung ho in, we're going to put a certain percentage of licenses for formerly incarcerated people. But because of all the other dynamics I mentioned before, it just wasn't successful. So I think, again, access to those auxiliary industries, I think is important. And then the second thing I would say is that I think it'll be important 
for um, those who continue to get licenses at the highest levels, the like growers, the dispensaries, the processors. It'll be important, I think, for the state in recognition of the limitations of access to capital, that those are going to be, you know, white, some of them multi-state operators, big, you know, money white folks that have access to those resources, that until we're able to get to a place where we have enough access to capital to compete, that I think we need to um, tax more heavily folks at that part of the industry. And I think this is a mistake the legislature made, actually, where, where the, tax, the sales tax on cannabis is a flat 9% which is by far the lowest in the country. We actually were advocating that they tax it at 15%, which would still make it the lowest in the country. And Maryland is losing out on hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, right? So our hope is, is that, and we will go back to the legislature to tell them they need to tax it at a more competitive rate so that we can invest those resources and the ability for black folks to get the capital needed to then be able to go into the industry. But if they, and you know, their argument was they wanted to tap down the black market the difference between what we've advocated for and the 9% is, a, is $2. So if I purchase $50 worth of cannabis, what we would say would increase it to 52. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, um, here in Maryland, after as of July, we've already seen over $4.5 million in uh, revenue generated from, from the sale of cannabis. Uh, from what you're seeing, how is cannabis, uh, Justin, how's that, that revenue been used across the nation? We're seeing a lot of different examples of, of ways legislatures and, and policymakers are choosing to invest that money. Uh, everything from new school construction to covering, uh, to repairing roads. Um, one novel concept that I think is, is really great coming out of Evanston, Illinois, is actually a form of reparations for, for individuals who have been previously arrested, where they're using the revenue generated from the sale of cannabis to uh, support either down payments for mortgages for Evanston residents or as rental assistance uh, for a period of time, which I think is a, a terrific uh, policy to consider when, when for, for other states and localities to how we undo the harm that has been done in a real tangible way. Um, you know, different data says different numbers, but uh, typically every, every iota of research shows that individuals who had a criminal record have a dramatically lower lifetime earning potential than than those who who had not been arrested. Um, so I think that's a really novel concept that that I hope your listeners will will consider and talk with their policymakers uh, at the local level about possibly implementing something similar. Um, you know, people who can who smoke marijuana, they they're good citizens. They, they recognize that, that, you know, society has determined sin taxes are, are one of the ways that we fund programs and, and you know, most of most cannabis consumers are happy to do so. Um, but we also want to be mindful that we're not taxing it too much. Uh, so that way we're we're continuing to drive consumers to the unregulated market. Well, what's on the horizon around this issue for the upcoming legislature and what, what are you guys doing to gear up for so I just mentioned the tax piece, so trying to um, get the legislature to increase the, the taxes on it. Um, and then there are a few other criminal justice pieces. One of them is between 1.5 and 2.5 ounces is a civil offense. Anything above 2.5 ounces, there's still criminal penalties attached to it. 
So one of the things that we're going to have to go back and do is we're going to argue to make it civil, right? 2.5 ounces, that still allows law enforcement justification to, you know, interact with folks. So that's one piece that's going to be important to address. Um, I think uh, more, I mentioned the older bill. So one of the bills that did get passed, was actually the last bill to pass the House this past session, um, prohibits law enforcement from solely using odor as the basis for a stop and search. It's going to be extremely important that there's more education around that. So that because I think there's still police officers that will still use it and do it, it'll be important for people to know that they can't just use odor as a pretense for that. So I think that that's more of just kind of more education about it. Um, and then, you know, um, and this will be the first place that we've mentioned this publicly, um, we're looking at potentially a broader push around reparations. You know, we think reparations for the war on drugs was a start. And I think a part of what it what it shows is that the legislature does have a capacity to understand what it means to compensate folks for a harm that was done to us systematically. If we could do that for the war on drugs, then we can do that for many of the broader issues, slavery, Jim Crow, all the kinds of terrorism and plunder that black people are subject to, that there's a capacity to understand that and move on that from a, from a, uh, understanding policy and, and the importance of that. So um, that's another piece that we're potentially looking at um, going after in the 2024 session. That's a lot, my man. This is have extreme, has been extremely enjoyable. I could rap with you all day, but I want to thank you, one, for sharing your knowledge, helping our audience to better understand the policy decisions that are affecting this topic in our state. Um, what, what would be your advice to any of the listeners who want to work on the upcoming legislation? Well, I would say uh, lbsbaltimore.com to, to stay tuned with some of the work that we're doing, action alerts. I want to always try to make it a point to to explain to people that, you know, it sounds like, you know, real kind of after school special, like to say contact your legislator, but it really works in ways that it's hard to quantify. And so whether it's our work, whether you follow LBS Baltimore on all the relevant social media and reach out to your legislator when we put out action alerts or for any other organization or effort that you're engaged in, um, the contacting your legislator um, is extremely important and, and starting there, as simple as that, is something that um, you know is important and, and can make a big difference. And Justin, man, thank you so much for, for reaching all the way down here to Maryland to join us on today. Um, what, what would be your advice to any listeners in particular, um, those who, who want to find ways to raise the issue of cannabis here in our state um, and suggestions you might give them um, that may help them to, to, to engage Davon in their legislative efforts. Uh, well, again, thank you so very much for having me. And this is one of, you know, for your listeners, for, for those hearing me now, uh, I strongly encourage you to, to think about ways to build relationships with your local, state, and federal policymakers you know, democracy is a verb, and marijuana policy reform is one of those just inherently interesting things. So don't be afraid to engage. There, there's a lot of groups out there that have action alerts where you can very easily send uh, messages to your lawmakers. Uh, Normal is one of them at my organization at thebullpack.org. You can find additional action alerts uh, to send those messages. Um, but also, you know, stay active, Get, show up at, at city council meetings, show up at the county council meetings and, and talk about how we now at this moment have a revolutionary opportunity to set these reforms on a trajectory. And even if you only shift the policy by 1%, 
just 1% to be a little bit better, then that is going to pay dividends for generations to come. So the, the power is ours if we only choose to seize it. And, and I really hope you stay active and stay engaged on marijuana policy reform and everything else that's impacting your community. Thank you both again, Justin and Davon. We really appreciate it. It's a great conversation. You can find podcast archives and resources from this episode at mdeconomy.org slash policy dash lowdown. And while you're there, you can sign up for our email list or support the policy lowdown by making a donation to the Maryland Center on Economic Policy. You can also find the Maryland Center on Economic Policy at MD Economy on Twitter and Instagram and MD Economic Policy on Facebook. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Those that will stand up, call our nation back toward justice and righteousness, are often bashed or, or labeled as socialist and unpatriotic. Many are labeled as instigators and, and rebel while rousing.